True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our 24th case together. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also available now on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel, so please, if you do enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. Just a little bit of business before we start the case this week. This is the last case of Season 2, so I'll not be releasing a new case until Friday the 17th of January 2020. This is due to the fact that I am moving house, so I'm having to dismantle the studio and rebuild it in a new place. Plus, whilst the wife is packing boxes, I don't think she'd appreciate me sitting on my fat ass and not helping. I may drop a couple of little bonus things between now and then, depending on the time element, but I cannot promise. This season has been amazing, and the podcast has grown to levels that I could not imagine. I want to thank everyone of my Patreons for the support that they've continued to give me. I'm hoping that you continue to enjoy the videos etc that I'm releasing over there. Most of all, I want to thank my team, Ashley, Jenny, Stuart, Sarah, Jason, Ryan and Alex for their continued support. Without them, I don't think I'd still be doing this, as they have taken a lot of pressure off me with the moderating of the Facebook groups and basically being there for me when I have to rant when things have gone wrong. I cannot thank you enough. I'm always looking for volunteers, so if you don't mind helping the podcast out with promotion or any other service that you can offer for free, then please contact me either by email or through the website. Anyway, enough of the business and time to move on. This case this week is a little bit of a crossover with my other major passion, and that is the sport, and in this case, good old association football. I just want to set a little bit of a scene for you. I was a little bit of a late bloomer when it comes to loving football. Despite my dad and granddad's best efforts to educate me in the beautiful game, I did not pick the love of the game up until I was about nine years old. It was the World Cup in the United States in 1994, and although England had been eliminated in the qualifying stages, 
due to officiating which deserved its own crime podcast, I was now hooked. The larger-than-life characters that came through my television screen. The Diego Maradona celebration against Greece, where he looked like a madman possessed. The Mexico goalkeeper, Jorge Campos, and his multicoloured fluorescent kits. The first time I ever heard a pub erupt when Ray Houghton smashed in a 30-yard screamer, the winner for Ireland against Italy. Alexi Lalas for the United States with his long ginger hair and beard. The team that I remember most, though, was Colombia. The goalkeeper, Rennie Hagita, who fancied himself more as a striker, but mainly memorable for the scorpion kick save from Jamie Redknapp in the March after the World Cup. If you've not seen it, look it up on YouTube. One of the most incredible things I've ever seen on a football pitch. There was also Carlos Valderrama with his massive hair and Faustino Esprilla, whose goal celebrations would have suited the gymnastics at the Summer Olympics. Football appeared to me at this time to be a little bubble where in my nine-year-old mind everyone seemed to be having perfect, harmless fun. How wrong could I have been towards the end of this tournament? I've always wanted to look into this story, and I suppose now I've got the perfect excuse. May I just make an appeal to those who are reaching for the skip button as you can't stand sport? Hold on, as you'll be missing out on a story of extortion, cartels, and all the potential reasons why one of the most successful captains in Colombia's history would end up murdered. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been written in the memory of Andreas Escobar. Andreas Escobar Saldarega was born on the 13th of March 1967 to Dario Escobar and Beatriz Saldarega in Medellin in Colombia. He also had a sister, Maria Esther, and two brothers, Jose Dario and Santiago Esteba. Medellin is the capital of the Antioquia region, with the population of over two and a half million people. His father Dario was a banker, who in his spare time founded an organisation which gave local youngsters the opportunity to play football instead of being on the streets. Football was therefore in his and his brother Santiago's blood, Santiago also going on to play professional football at a high level. Andreas attended the Colegio Calasanz, a state school in Medellin, before attending the Instituto Conrado González Meyer. Andreas was a devout Catholic and would go to Mass every day before school with his mother until her death on the 11th of November 1985 at the age of 52. Andreas turned professional in 1988 at the age of 21 after signing a youth contract with the Medellin-based Atletico Nacional, where he would play until 1989. Andreas's ability was obvious and he made his debut for the Colombian national team a few months later, playing on the 30th of March 1988 
in a 3-0 win against Canada. I'll return to this a little bit later, as I need to explain that the Colombian Football League had a number of issues. As most people were aware, Colombia is a country which has a long history of organised crime and cartels. Pablo Escobar, a namesake but no relation to Andreas, was the head of a multi-billion dollar Medellin drug cartel. Despite his status as a bloodthirsty ganglord, Pablo Escobar was beloved by his country's poor, for whom he provided employment and housing. Pablo Escobar was heavily linked to the ownership of the Atletico Nacional, despite at the time not being a public face of the team. It was through the ticket sales for cash and the decidedly creative bookkeeping which came from player transfers, which allegedly enabled him to launder hundreds of millions of dollars of drug money into legitimate income. Just think Walter White's car wash in Breaking Bad. Other cartels followed his lead, and in the 1980s their investment in various clubs led to a resurgence in Colombian football. The wages paid encouraged Colombia's finest players to remain at home, enabling Atletico Nacional to become South American club champions by winning the 1989 Copa Libertadores by beating Paraguayan club Club Olimpia 5-4 on penalty kicks in the final after a two-all draw over two legs. That successful team featured Andreas Escobar in its lineup, and he scored the first penalty. His first appearance in an international competition took place at the 1988 Rouse Cup, a tri-team competition which also included England and Scotland, where he also scored the only goal of his international career in a one-all draw against England at Wembley Stadium. Andreas's playing style had earned him the nickname El Cabro del Football, or the Gentleman of Football. Before we go any further, I need to return to the story of Pablo Escobar. Please remember, there is no blood relation, but there is a direct correlation between the two men's stories. Pablo Escobar is not the type of character who would normally be the attention of this podcast, as he was responsible for the murder of assorted judges, politicians, over 500 policemen, at least one football referee, and thousands of rival cartel members who displeased him. Eventually, Pablo Escobar had surrendered to the Colombian authorities in the early 1990s, having first avoided attempts to extradite him to the USA. He was sentenced to reside in the La Catedral prison on the outskirts of Medellin. He had been promised a reduced sentence if he agreed to cease trafficking drugs. La Catedral was a prison overlooking the city of Medellin. The prison was built to the specifications ordered by Pablo Escobar under the 1991 agreement to his surrender. He was to serve a maximum term of five full years in the facility on the understanding it was being built to his specifications. Escobar was also given the right to choose who would guard him and it was believed he chose guards loyal only to him. 
On the contrary, the prison was believed to have been designed more to keep out Escobar's enemies and protect him from assassination attempts than to keep Escobar in. The Finnish prison was often called Hotel Escobar or Club Medellin because of its amenities. La Catedral featured a football pitch, giant doll's house, bar, jacuzzi and waterfall. Escobar also had a telescope installed that allowed him to look down on the city of Medellin into his daughter's residence whilst talking on the phone to her. He was visited by members of the Colombia football team who would travel there in secret for a kickabout on the pitch that Pablo Escobar had ordered to be built within the prison grounds as a condition of his surrender. As mentioned previously, however, he was still held in high regard by the poverty-stricken members of Colombian society due to the facilities that he had built and the jobs that he had offered. This included a large number of community football pitches where a large number of the national team had first learned to play. On one occasion, in late 1993, the famously flamboyant Colombian goalkeeper René Hagita, whom I mentioned in the introduction, foolishly stopped to chat with journalists on his way into the prison to visit Escobar. It caused a scandal with his photograph and quotes being used in the national press the following day. It was an ill-advised move that would cost him his place at the 1994 World Cup Finals, which was also a big blow for the national team. René Higuita was subsequently arrested and imprisoned on what were rumoured to be charges of mediating in the ransom negotiation of a kidnapping. Most in Colombia believed that the real reason for his imprisonment was the government's embarrassment that such a famous figure had been seen publicly supporting one of the most hated individuals amongst Colombian politicians and one of America's most wanted criminals. Whereas René Higuita could see the good and the bad in Pablo Escobar, Andreas, on the other hand, was slightly more conflicted and was always uncomfortable at being invited to such a high-profile criminal, however secretive the invites were. Maria, I just don't want to go, but I have no choice, he used to tell his sister. He would not have to concern himself with the invites for much longer. Despite living the life of luxury in prison, in July 1992, Pablo Escobar escaped from prison and went on the run after hearing the authorities were planning to move him to a stricter regime. Sixteen months after his escape from La Catedral, Pablo Escobar died in a shootout on the 2nd of December 1993 amid another of Escobar's attempts to elude the search block, a special branch of the Colombian National Police. The group responsible was a bunch of vigilantes known as the Peps, Los Pasquido por Pablo Escobar, or the people persecuted by Pablo Escobar, and was mainly comprised of rival cartels, right-wing parliamentaries led by Carlos Castano, 
which were backed by the police and the special forces of both Colombia and the USA, as well as countless members of Escobar's own Medellin cartel, who had been ordered to turn against their boss or be killed. More on the effect of that a little bit later. By the start of September 1993, Andreas's life had completely changed. He had returned from Switzerland, where he had been playing for the team Young Boys, which are based in the city of Bern, to his boyhood club of Atletico Nacional. He had met the love of his life, a dentist named Pamela Cascada. They arranged to get married in late 1994, but first, Andreas had to focus on the World Cup in the United States. Despite the fact that Andreas had not played during the qualification stage due to a significantly bad knee injury, he was selected for the final squad on the merit of his performances for Atletico towards the end of the season. He was awarded his traditional number two shirt and was also in line for a move to Italian giants AC Milan after the tournament. Things were really starting to look positive for El Caballero del Football. Colombia had qualified for the tournament with four wins and two draws ahead of Argentina, Paraguay and Peru. A campaign which also included a 5-0 annihilation of Argentina in Buenos Aires meaning that the two-time winners had to qualify through the repechage. The Colombian squad travelled to USA 94, having conceded only two goals in qualifying and losing just once in 26 matches. Brazilian legend Pele had predicted that they would win the tournament, but many pundits believed that they were capable of making at least the quarter-finals. Leading politicians would attend Colombian national team matches and the football team was seen as the main hope for national unity. Socially, it was also a time of terrible division and misery for Colombia. Medellin was in a state of emergency following the murder of Pablo Escobar. When Pablo died, the city spun out of control and Reyes' cousin, Jame Gavira explained on ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary, The Two Escobars. The boss was dead, so everyone became their own boss. Pablo had prohibited kidnapping. He ran the underworld with complete order. Anything illegal, you had to ask for Pablo's permission. With Pablo Escobar gone, permission was no longer required. Colombia were drawn in Pool A, along with the hosts, the United States, and two unfancied outsiders, European teams, Romania, and a country that Andreas knew a little bit about, Switzerland, who were managed by Englishman Roy Hodgson. Their first match was on the 18th of June 1994, at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, Florida. Colombia were wearing their changed strip of blue shirts and red shorts as they clashed with Romania's all-yellow strip. The game was officiated by Syrian referee Jamal al-Sharif and 91,856 people were in attendance. 
the Romanian style of play countered the Colombian's very flamboyant attacking style by defending deep and then attacking on the break. In the 15th minute, disaster struck for the Colombians as AC Milan's Florian Radachoyu scored for Romania. Things got worse in the 34th minute as the pick of the game's goals was a breathtaking effort by Brescia's Jorge Hadji, spotting Oscar Cordoba off his line and scoring with a shot from the touchline which was both preposterous as it was audacious. Cordoba was the Colombian team's goalkeeper, replacing the jailed number one, René Hagita. Bayern Munich's Adolfo Valencia scored to ignite the hopes of the Colombian comeback, but the Romanian goalkeeper, Bodigan Stella, was having a day where he was repelling all other opportunities which came his way. Hopes of a comeback were eventually dashed by Radachoyu's second and the team's third as he scored in the 89th minute. The final score was Romania 3, Colombia 1. Journalist Cesar Morisito Velasquez recalled what happened next. I quote, That marked the beginning of a psychological crisis for which the team was not prepared. Many gamblers lost big money and there appeared to be a sort of dark hand that was very upset with the team's performance. The dark hand in question manifested itself on the TV screens in the players' hotel rooms where the customary welcome messages awaiting returning guests were replaced with unpleasant threats by enterprising hackers. Following the death of Pablo Escobar, the infant son of the Colombia defender, Luis Herrera, had been kidnapped and subsequently returned to Medellin unharmed. But following his side's defeat at the hands of Romania, Herrera received word from home that his brother had been killed in a car crash. An unassuming leader of men, Andreas did his utmost to help his best friend and the team to hold things together. That night, Andreas kept me company, said Herrera. I wanted to give up and go home, but Andreas said, the country depends on you. This is our one shot at the World Cup. Colombia's preparations for their second group match, which was also held at the Rose Bowl, were less than ideal, but the team remained confident. At home, Medellin remained in meltdown. The streets habitually littered with burnt-out cars, bricks, bodies and blood. In Florida, team manager Francisco Maturana cried as he arrived for the pre-match meeting with his players. They had all received more death threats, whilst Maturana had been warned that if veteran midfielder Gabriel Gomez was started, the entire squad would be murdered. Star striker Faustino Asprilla, who was playing his football for Parma in Italy, remembered everyone at the meeting being really tense, paralysed by fear and with nobody saying a word. 
Their second group game took place on the 22nd of June against the hosts, the United States. This time with 93,869 people in attendance and Fabio Baldras from Italy refereeing. The Colombian team threw everything they could at the USA team, but they could not get a breakthrough. A lot of the threats kept playing on their minds. Then disaster struck for Andreas. In the 35th minute of the game, the United States won the ball back and it was played to Derby County's player, John Harkes on the left-hand side of the pitch and he played a low cross into the penalty area towards Willem Trey's Ernie Stewart who was approximately eight yards out from goal. At full stretch, in an attempt to stop the ball from reaching the striker who would surely have scored, Andreas made contact with the ball with the bottom of his studs and sent the ball rolling agonisingly past the hopelessly wrong-footed Cordoba and into his own goal. Following a few seconds of quiet reflection as he lay flat on his back, Andreas rose to his feet, glanced to his right and walked slowly towards the halfway line. Keeper made a number of great saves. As Parks now, with Calajuri overlapping on the far side, sends it inside his own goal. The USA gets to score Escobar on the own goal, and the United States leads Colombia one to nothing. He had to make a play on the ball, and unfortunately, it went in. Said midfielder Alexis Garcia. I saw Andreas's face and felt deep pain. It was like a premonition. The dream was all but over for Colombia. Ernie Stewart doubled the USA's lead in the 52nd minute with a tap-in, and that's how it stayed until the final minute when Valencia scored his second goal of the tournament. Nothing more than a late consolation. The final score was United States 2, Colombia 1. And that meant that they were bottom of the group after two games with no points. As Switzerland and the United States both have four points from their first two games, the only hope for Colombia to qualify was if Romania lost to the United States in their final group game and Colombia beat Switzerland. Even that route would not be simple as they would then have to hope that results in the other groups meant that they would qualify as one of the best third-place teams. On the 26th of June, at 1pm local time, both games kicked off. After 11 minutes of the game, Colombian hearts were broken as Romania took a 1-0 lead against the United States. Although Colombia did their bit and beat Switzerland 2-0, it was all in vain. Their total of three points in three games meant that they were going home, bottom of the group. The players were distraught, knowing there was going to be a backlash at home due to the expectations which had been put on them. Andreas was devastated by Colombia's World Cup exit and he felt a lot of remorse for his contribution to it a contribution 
he would never watch on television. He was asked to stay at the tournament and be a colour commentator for the Carcool Radio, Colombia's premier network. We invited him to stay, said Gusta Pombo, a network executive. Andreas considered the job but decided against it, deciding that he wanted to return home instead. He even decided to return to Colombia instead of visiting relatives in Las Vegas. Upon his return to Medellin, his friends and family rallied around in a bid to lift his spirits, while his friend Cesar Maurizio Velasquez convinced him to write his Life Doesn't End Here column for El Tiempe, a newspaper based out of the Colombian capital, Bogota. Life doesn't end here. We have to go on. Life cannot end here. No matter how difficult, we must stand back up. We only have two options. Either allow anger to paralyse us and the violence continues, or we overcome and try our best to help others. It's our choice. Let us please maintain respect. My warmest regards to everyone. It's been the most amazing and rare experience. We'll see each other again soon because life does not end here. He forgot about his worries, said his fiancée. There was warnings, but Andreas was young and alive. He wanted to live his life. Had I known, I'd have kept him home that night. On Friday the 1st of July 1994, Andreas decided to go out with his friends for the first time since his return from the World Cup, and he called Luis Herrera and invited him along. Herrera told him to stay in, advising Andreas it would probably be best if he laid low. His manager shared Herrera's concerns and told Andreas to be careful. I said the streets are dangerous, the coach said. Here, conflicts aren't resolved with fists. Andreas, stay at home. But Andreas said, no, I must show my face to the people. Andreas left his fiancée, Pamela Gascardo, in her dental office and called his friends to join him. The first place they visited was a bar in the El Pablado neighbourhood in Medellin, a disco bar called Padua. However, the happiness of the reunion began to diminish with the personal insults of the brothers, Juan Santiago and Pedro David Gajon, and their friends. The reason? The unfortunate own goal which had ultimately knocked Colombia out of the World Cup against the United States. Upon moving on and arriving at the El Indio bar with his friends, Andreas enjoyed a few drinks and was happily talking to other people in the venue when a few more people began insulting him, sarcastically cheering his error against the United States. Andreas had had enough and decided to call it a night at approximately 3am 
and left the bar heading towards where his car was parked. But a group of four people continued to follow him, hurling abuse. Once Andreas was back at his car, they continued their tirade and loudly labelled him a faggot. Upset, Andreas drove his car across the car park in order to reason with the group, insisting his own goal had been an honest mistake. An already tense situation escalated and at least one gun was produced and fired. Six bullets tore through the flesh of Andreas's back as he sat at the wheel of his car. It was reported that the killer shouted, Goal! 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 After every shot, once for each time the South American football commentator said it during the broadcast. The group then drove away in a Toyota pickup truck, leaving Andreas to bleed to death. An ambulance was called, but it was too late. Less than 30 minutes later, Andreas Escobar was declared dead. The following day back in America, what was an almost universal celebration of football for the past two weeks became a day of mourning as the second round began at Soldier Field in Chicago and the RFK Stadium in Washington. Word of Andreas's murder filtered through the RFK Stadium's locker rooms, culminating in a moment of silence before the Spain and Switzerland game. A Colombian television crew abandoned its equipment and wandered aimlessly through the press centre outside the stadium, their appetite for the game suddenly gone. I just found out and I'm speechless, producer Marden David said. He was 27 and we were friends since he was 19. Andreas was the nicest, most decent man on the team and the most disciplined the last one you'd think it could be. Sepp Blatter, General Secretary of FIFA, which is football's governing body, said it was the saddest day he'd seen in the game, far beyond the violence in the stands or hooliganism. Republic of Ireland coach Jack Charlton said he might give Andreas's family the money collected by Irish fans to help pay for a fine which had been brought against him for a sideline outburst against match officials during a match against Mexico. Who wants to play international football if you get assassinated doing it, he asked. It's a dreadful thing, just dreadful. Some were not as thoughtful though. In the UK, the BBC issued a public apology after football pummed it and former Scotland international Alan Hansen who was commentating said during a match between Argentina and Romania that the Argentine defender warrants shooting for a mistake like that. That match taking place on July the 3rd, a day after the announcement of the murder of Andreas. In the wake of the shooting, it was strongly assumed and remains widely to this day suggested to be a revenge attack perpetrated by gangsters who had suffered significant financial losses betting on Colombia at the World Cup.
shortly after the local police arrived at the scene. Two people gave the license plate number of one of the vehicles in which the group responsible for the murder had made their getaway in. It was registered to the Gajon brothers, Pedro and Juan, drug traffickers who had left Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel to join the Peps. The two men who were identified as shouting insults at Andreas in the first bar. Yon Jairo Velasquez Vasquez was an enforcer for Pablo Escobar and is currently in prison for 300 murders, described in the ESPN documentary which was made what he believes happened next. He alleged that immediately after the shooting, the Gajons approached Carlos Castano, the founder of the Peasant Self-Defenders of Cordoba, ACCU, a far-right paramilitary organisation, and paid him $3 million to buy off the prosecutor's office and get them to focus their investigation on one of their bodyguards who had been present at the scene. Whether or not he actually pulled the trigger remains unknown, but Humberto Castro Munoz confessed to Andreas's murder on the 3rd of July. Munoz worked as a driver for Santiago Gajon, who was allegedly one of the people who had lost heavily betting on the outcome of the game against the United States. After making his confession, Munoz was then transferred under heavy guard to Bogota on the same day for the legal proceedings. By the time of Andreas's funeral, Monday the 4th of July 1994, more than 100,000 Colombians had filed past his body as it lay in a wooden casket draped with a green and white Atlético Nacional club flag in the Medellín basketball arena. Colosivo Ivan Di Mourners began filing past Andreas's coffin on Saturday night and continued through Sunday, at one point lining up for five city blocks to catch a glimpse of their fallen hero. An estimated 10,000 people, including President Cesar Gaviria and Medellin Mayor Luis Alfredo Ramos, gathered in Medellin's largest arena on the site known as the Sporting Coliseum to attend the funeral service. At his funeral, the Colombian president said the footballer was a victim of the absurd violence affecting the country. There were chants of, justice, justice, from the thousands of mourners lining the streets as Andreas was taken to his final resting place. According to Andreas's friend, Cesar Mauricio Velasquez, the cries came from people, unite in our pain, sending our prayers to the heavens for the soul of Andreas Escobar and for the soul of sport in Colombia. Weeping fans threw flowers in the path of the hearse as it passed with police escort, while at the cemetery, Colombia flags were waved by many of the 15,000 present to see Andreas's coffin lowered into the ground at the Cemeterio Campos de Paz. 
the police announced to the media on the day of the funeral that two men, Humberto Munoz and Santiago Garjon, had been arrested in connection to the murder. According to the police, Munoz shot Andreas after Garjon remonstrated with the player over his own goal. The police said that Andreas was shot six times, not twelve as had originally been reported. General Octavio Vargas Silva, director of the National Police, said that the assailants were apparently drunk. Jesus Albero Jepez was the prosecutor who brought the case, and as there was a confession from the defendant, the conviction was straightforward. Munoz was sentenced to 43 years in prison. His three accomplices were acquitted, which included the two Gajon brothers. Just to look at Velasquez's claims a little closer, and the potential story of corruption, there is no evidence anywhere of Munoz's trial, or the appeal where the jail term was reduced to 26 years. Munoz would eventually be released after 11 years from the Medeo prison in Bogota for good behaviour in 2005. So what has happened in the 25 years since the murder? Every year, people honour El Caballero del Football by bringing photographs of him to Atletico Nacional matches. After Andreas' death, his family founded the Andreas Escobar Project to help disadvantaged children learn to play football. The programme would consist of setting up soccer schools for poor children with very clear objectives. The idea was not to train players, but men. The people in charge of the programme realised that work must be done with the family of the children and therefore it had to be a long-term project that allows to have good results and good impact and hopefully reducing the street activity. Ergo, on the 20th of September 1994, there was an initial launch of the Andreas Escobar Saldagraga social and sports programme. Every three years, 60 10-year-old boys from two of Medellin's roughest neighbourhoods would be accepted onto the programme at no cost. This is the age when the boys start going into the streets and getting involved with gangs and vices, said Mario A. Gomez, sporting coordinator at the Visitation Foundation, which administers the project with the help of the Escobar family. The project offers the youngsters alternatives, teaching them the values of Andreas Escobar. The program's $20 a month cost per pupil is paid by donations from local businesses and individuals. Most of the money is used to pay coaches and psychologists who work with the boys and their families. Participants are coached in soccer twice a week at public sports fields and meet every two weeks for workshops that teach values. Even during their coaching sessions, emphasis is on team play and getting along. 
Soccer is what they use to attract boys. Through soccer, they teach them. The program also teaches the young players' families. In order for the boys to stay in the program, their parents must attend monthly meetings to discuss raising adolescents. In July 2002, the city of Medellin unveiled a statue in honour of the memory of Andreas, which is less than two miles south of the Atanasio Gerardo Stadium, the home of Atletico Nacional. In 2009, when the ESPN documentary was made, it is suggested that had Pablo Escobar still been alive, the Gajon brothers would have not have targeted Andreas Escobar, as it was widely known that Pablo Escobar was a fanatical supporter of the Colombian national team. Dario, Andreas's father and one of Andreas's idols, died at the age of 77, with pain still in his heart. He never understood why he was murdered. He didn't talk about him, and he was very tough. When researching this case, I found a post in response to someone inquiring about Andreas's final resting place. And it says, I quote, I can tell you that the mortal remains of the eternal number two are in the crypt of the church of Collegio Calasans, west of Medellin, along with those of his father, mother and another brother. I believe that his remains were relocated there from another cemetery in Medellin. I cannot find any other English language sources to support or deny this move of the remains, but I'm sure someone listening will be able to help me. In 2013, the then Colombian coach, Francisco Matarana, denied that Andreas's murder had any connection to football or the World Cup, but rather was due to his being in the wrong place at the wrong time, in a violent time in Colombian history. Andres would have been 52 this year. He had been planning marriage, having children and a move to AC Milan that would have confirmed his status as one of the world's best defenders. He would have also surely revelled in the emergence of a wonderful new generation of Colombian football. Stars such as James Rodriguez, Radamel Falcao and Juan Cuadrado. He would have certainly enjoyed his nation being crowned Copa America champions in 2001. Unfortunately though, although his legacy lives on, the murder of Andreas Escobar is a constant reminder of Colombia's violent past. So that's it for this season. Thank you once again everyone for your continued support and I can't wait to start the new season already. First thing I would like to say is Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates it and a Happy New Year. Please remember if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more then please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page True Crime Fix Podcast 
but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information about the week's cases. You can also visit the website www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk That's www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me through the website. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. <laughs>